May I begin in Ephesians 4, verse 2, and then lead on into 4 through 6. With all humility, the Lord says, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As you and I look at this world around us and as we consider carefully the words of this special passage, we can easily see that the world is so very clever in its ways and especially in its ways of commandeering principles and ideas from these scriptures and then using them for its own purposes. And then also very skillfully inserting its ways and its philosophies back into the church. And I confess that for much of my life I have often been a willing participant in some of the systems that the world employs in reading these words about unity within the body of Christ, I'm reminded of how the corporate world strives daily for these very same goals. Unity and oneness in purpose and and goals. Business plans are filled to the brim with those kinds of ideas and methodologies. And why would that be so? Why would that be so? It's because the concepts really do work well in most all group undertakings. So simply put, unity and oneness are excellent concepts that really work. And I'd like to take this point one step further and say that the closer that these philosophies of unity and oneness are administered in the manner in which these scriptures recommend the more success that they'll employ and that they will enjoy. I recall as a manager back in my banking years that even before I came to know the Lord, I was using these concepts because I realized that as I would be able to make those who worked under my supervision successful, That's how successful I would be because their success accrued up to me and then it accrued on up to the bank and the bank was successful. Very excellent concepts. As I said, then both as a secular leader then, as a banker and then later on in my management years at French Camp, I applied these principles. I would often work behind the scenes to bring a consensus within our groups, implementing these what's called in today's world team-building philosophies, all for the purpose of creating unity and oneness within the groups. But now with all that being said, I also must quickly warn us that if the Spirit of Christ if the Spirit of Christ is not kept firmly at the center of 
of these philosophies, they really will not work out well in the long run. And why would that be so? Simply because without the Spirit of Christ, all such philosophies as these are devoid of the real power that's necessary to make them really work. Those words in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We must remind ourselves that the unity that's spoken about here in these scriptures is not merely an idea or a philosophy. And it's not that mystical aura of oneness that the secular world perceives it to be. And as this unity is sought within our Christian endeavors, we need to be careful not to confuse what's taking place. Real and true spiritual unity. Listen. Real and pure spiritual unity is embodied within a person. The person of Christ. And here in our text today, God is telling us with all humility, he said, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility is a character trait of Christ. Yes, we can have varying amounts of humility in our natural state, but it does not have the power. So with all humility, he says, and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now you'll note here that God is not holding anything back in being and having emphatic resolve about the need for oneness in the body of Christ. And while, yes, this unity, this oneness does require some degree of human effort on our part, yes, we must get involved in it. It is a oneness that is a whole, of a whole other level that God is speaking about here, the spiritual oneness, because it, and it transcends any ability that our human efforts might muster. A unity that's empowered only by the presence of God himself. Again, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this unity is not just in proportional degrees. This unity is absolutely all of God. That's why he emphasized it here. He emphasized this galvanizing togetherness of oneness where he says that one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. His presence being at the center of this unity and oneness in his prayers for his disciples just before Jesus was crucified. He prayed for this special mystical oneness that is being talked about here. 
that oneness that binds us together in unity. This is uh, John chapter 17. Let me read this for you. This is John 17 beginning in verse 15. He prays, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I consecrate, I sanctify myself, I set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified, set apart in your truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and you loved them even as you have loved me. Now here in these words of Jesus, he's asking God the Father to set apart, to sanctify, to set apart his disciples, both those that he had with him at the time, but also you and me, who would believe later on as a result of their testimonies. But to separate us out into this special body, one that's formed and consecrated for one purpose, and that is to glorify the Father. And no, he was not saying in these words that we would be raptured away in some way or separated out from from the world completely, from the people of this world especially. To the contrary, we would intentionally have to remain in the world, intertwined with them. We talked about that in an earlier message in the parable of the weeds we would need to remain right all in amongst them, us being the wheat, them being the weeds. But though we are intertwined within this world and within its people, we as believers, this special body, would be united together separately. United together separately, though we are intertwined with them, united together separately in his body. A peculiar people were called, set apart for the purposes of God. Let me repeat something I said to us last week, and that is this really is an impossible assignment. That's why our unity must be filled with the presence of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this about these words in Ephesians 4. He said, consider how many unities, how many forms of unity there are that are the joy and the glory of our Christian profession. How many times we have these opportunities to be be one with, with other groups of Christians within this body of Christ. There should be one heart, for there is one body and one spirit. If there be but one body, all that belongs to that body should have one heart. We should be one together in our beliefs. Again, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one belief. 
the church is one mystical body of Christ, Matthew Henry says, and all good Christians make up but one body incorporated in one, uh, with one charter, that of the gospel, animated by one spirit, the same Holy Spirit who by his gifts and graces quickens, enlivens, and governs that body. If we belong to Christ, we are all moved in what we do by one and the same spirit and therefore should be one. In other words, as you and I would surrender ourselves to Christ on a daily basis, and I mean from the very first moment that you open your eyes, saying to the Lord, I want to surrender everything that I am to you, then that provides this opportunity for the Holy Spirit. It says, if we belong to Christ, we are all moved in what we do by one and the same Spirit, and therefore should be one. And by the way, that verse refers back to Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says, I will put my Spirit within your Spirit, and I will move you to follow my decrees. Now as I was studying through this oneness, I confess that I'm, I, I'm, I'm acutely aware of all that's being emphasized for us in these words because of all the many years of working there in the ministry of French camp. Unity of the Spirit was an absolute requirement if peace was going to prevail amongst our staff members and with our kids and they're in the ministry and that if the ministry was going to be rightfully accomplished. And difficulties did sometimes arise. No matter how much we would reach for unity. May I say though quickly that those difficulties that we encountered seldom ever were of a blatantly sinful kind. Uh, I, I, re I recall very few circumstances of that. The problems that did arise within our group there, that part of the body of Christ, seemed most often to come from simple differences in ideas and philosophies and procedures and methodology. Each person wanted the Lord's will. And each wanted the very best for the children and for their co-workers. But each having such a diverse thought about how it should be accomplished. And with that then, divisions would arise. But as God is saying to us here in the words of our text, those kinds of behavior are always curable. They are curable through humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But to have that cure, to have that cure always at work within us, we would have to return back to and be committed to there is but one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now in the greater body of Christ, as I read these words, I'm especially convicted about the divisions that exist between churches throughout our land and our world and between the denominations. Last week, as my wife and I were traveling home, we were listening to a debate 
that was taking place on the radio between these two men with opposing viewpoints of doctrine. One was a Calvinist. The other was an Arminian. Recalling that Arminians, uh, the Arminian doctrine is Baptist, Methodist, and uh, a good percentage of the, the uh, Pentecostal uh, charismatic uh, folks. So one has the Calvinist side of the debate. The other one has the Arminian side of the debate. And as these two men talked, though they were especially civil to one another, they were nonetheless very divergent, very divergent in their beliefs. And I must say that as I listened, I was grieved. Two men who loved the Lord. No doubt. They loved the Lord. But they had such differences. And they offered answers that did not satisfy the soul. There's also a similar circumstance taking place nationally. A very heated debate taking place and it's brought on by the recent release of a book written by one of the best Bible scholars of our time, John MacArthur. The book is entitled Strange Strange Fire. Strange Fire. Referring to the fire with which the our charismatic brethren uh, see themselves involved with God's Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Dr. MacArthur is what is called, known as a secessionist. Secessionist. He believes that certain charismatic gifts, such as prophecy and speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, ceased to exist right after the first century. And there is a great number of those folks who believe that. Last October, Dr. MacArthur used his Strange Fire book and, and a conference entitled Strange Fire Conference to speak out against what he considers to be unbiblical aspects of the charismatic movement, insisting that members of the movement have been attributing to the Holy Spirit things that are unbiblical. Most of the Bible scholars from the charismatic denominations have taken strong issue, of course, with MacArthur's contentions. And we've listened to some of those on other occasions, uh, those debates. But then also, I found as I was studying through this more, that there are some within what would be called MacArthur's own camp that disagree with him. One of them is one of my favorite uh, preachers uh, and authors, John Piper. Now these two men, John MacArthur, a Presbyterian uh, minister and, and a theologian, and John Piper, a Baptist, two of the most respected Christian leaders and Bible scholars in our nation today. They're both very strongly Calvinist. John Piper, a Baptist. John MacArthur, Presbyterian. Both very strong Calvinists. And both preaching Reformed theology. But differing widely 
on this particular matter. Both devout, devout believers. Now their division is not heated. They are good friends, but they do disagree on this particular matter. John Piper is called a continuationist. John MacArthur is a secessionist. John Piper is a continuationist. By the way, neither of those words are in the dictionary. They had to make up words to describe their stands. John Piper is a continuationist and and he supports the belief that the Holy Spirit continues today to empower Christians with all of the same spiritual gifts that were given in that first century. And may I insert here that I am also a continuationist. I also believe that the Holy Spirit continues today to empower Christians with all the spiritual gifts as he deems appropriate. That's what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 12. Giving to each person as he wills. And nowhere do these scriptures declare that any of these spiritual gifts have ceased to be. I don't have those spiritual gifts. But that does not mean that God does not still give them to whom he desires to give them. Now when questioned about why he believes that some of these spiritual gifts have ceased to be because there are no direct scriptures that say that they have ceased, MacArthur simply responds that uh, there are so many other scriptures that point to that conclusion, that he has had to come to that conclusion. And he and others who would arrive at those decisions in the same manner refer to such words as the Trinity, which is also not mentioned in these scriptures. The word Trinity is not used in these scriptures. But there are just multitudes of scriptures that point to the Trinity. And so we believe in the Trinity though it is not specifically spoken about. As I've listened to to these debates taking place, I've had to conclude that while we must not shy away from digging deeply into the ways and into the mysteries of God, we really do need to understand that there are some apparent paradoxes and, and mysteries such as these that will never be fully reconciled in our minds. The Calvinist doctrine, the Arminian doctrine, they would seem to oppose one another. They don't. But we can't fathom the mystery in order to explain it, how they actually intertwine. We simply are not in possession of of enough of the facts, the knowledge, the wisdom to understand these doctrines rightly. And there's a hundredfold more paradoxes and mysteries out there that earnest men and women have debated for centuries. And unfortunately, churches and church leaders will remain in their disagreements. 
who and what then could be called the culprit in these sorts of disagreements? What can be faulted? I have to say that I blame it mostly on the one thing that seems most to separate us in our unity and in our oneness, and that is our free will. Our free will. Our incessant need to have claim to my right to myself. I believe it, therefore it is true. A dangerous thought, folks. Dangerous thought. We'll read a scripture or we'll read an article in a publication and immediately our mind begins to form opinions and beliefs and some of them are right and some of them are wrong. And most of the time, the debate within our own minds is not between good and evil, but it's against it, it's between something that is good and perhaps the best thing. There's a saying that the enemy of the best is not the worst. The enemy of the best is good. And we settle for good rather than the best. And so these debates rage within our own minds. As we said last week, this thing that Satan does within our midst if he can keep us arguing amongst ourselves over these differences and he's dividing our oneness and our unity, then he takes away these small victories that he might have in some small way defeated Christ within us. So what must we return to then? What must we cling to if we truly hope to have the unity of the Spirit that God intends for us, that He's speaking about here. And He gives us the answer, and it's very simple in these words. There is but one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Folks, there is no Calvinist God. And there is no Arminian God. And there is no charismatic God. There really is only one God who is God over all of these doctrines and all of these denominational differences. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that must be the standard and the course that you and I pursue if we're ever to remain at peace with all people in this unity of the Spirit, especially as these scriptures define it in this household of faith, in this body of Christ. You and I are to seek peace and to pursue it, knowing that the people in the churches that meet right around us here today. They are worshiping the very same God that we are worshiping here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And yes, we may differ 
in whether we believe in once saved, always saved, or we might differ in the manner and the mode of our use of water in baptism, and we might differ in whether we lift up holy hands in praise to the Lord. But listen, such things are minor, and they should not separate us in our fellowship. May I just close today with these words again and calling us to a fresh commitment to this unity that he's speaking about here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Praise be to God. Let's pray.